This is an Odyssey original. This is KDEX in Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. All the heat we had and all the heat we will have can kill you. We'll go in depth into the rise of heat related deaths in California and how climate change is just one. Of several factors. A mystery over land purchases near San Francisco freaks some people out. Has been solved. We'll tell you what the plans are, but not everybody's happy with them. We start with heat-related deaths. Wendy Hetherington is the chief epidemiologist for Riverside County Public Health. Riverside County has been hit especially hard, by the way, by heat illnesses in recent years. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. So I I guess uh, on the one hand, it's not a surprise that uh, extreme temperatures, hot or cold for that matter, can lead to more people dying, especially if they're in bad condition to begin with. But it seems as if our more recent uh, waves of heat around the country and here in California uh, have been more uh, lethal than one might have expected. Yes, I would say that. But also, you know, the temperatures have been rising in general worldwide, as well as in California and Riverside County in particular. Um, Also, people um, have been moving into more desert regions. For instance, Riverside County and San Bernardino County, our neighboring county, um, have 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 increased populations due to cost of living issues in surrounding counties that may be cooler. And and so that is also leading. There's more people in hotter areas. And I know there are a lot of efforts to mitigate the the fallout from all the extra heat, like trying to put more green spaces in and what have you. But the simple fact of the matter is, at least for right now, uh, the temperatures are going to get more extreme. So we are going to face hotter summers and this is going to become an ongoing health problem. What do we need to do to help stem the tide? Um, first of all, I think acknowledge people who may be more at risk um, for heat-related illness, um, such as uh, people who are unhoused or people with disabilities, pregnant people, older adults, um, people with chronic medical conditions, people who work outside, as well as uh, infants and children and student athletes, um, as well as people you know, who are unaccustomed to heat. So we have a lot of international travelers who come into Riverside County, particularly the Palm Springs area, and may not be used to that heat. Do drugs play a role in the deaths? Um, y- yes. So so people taking specific medications, as well as uh, people who um, use drugs such as methamphetamines, um, that can rise internal body temperature, and then that mixed with higher temperatures can be a lethal mix. Would it help as we move forward to put in place a system of uh, warnings? You know, we, we, we have the weather-related warnings, but maybe they could be uh, more serious when it comes to uh, not just affecting people's health, but uh, putting people's lives at risk. Yes, that's something I, I, I have been... Um, advocating for for uh, for a few years is that we have warning systems for hurricanes or like what we recently went through with hurricane or tropical storm hillary we were all warned ahead of time i think we need uh heat related warnings as as well well how would they differ from what we already have where you know the weather person says it's going to be really hot tomorrow you know stay indoors if you can um, well, I think getting getting alerts, we all carry mobile phones these days. I think getting alerts on your mobile phones, um, activating our emergency response systems um, and getting people prepared for people who may not have those 
mobile phones. All right, Wendy uh, Hetherington, uh, Chief Epidemiologist for Riverside County Public Health. Thanks for joining us talking about uh, heat and how it can be a killer. Right now, though, more ethics questions surrounding the Supreme Court. Justice Clarence Thomas disclosing Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow paid for private jet trips for him last year. Justice Samuel Alito disclosing a conservative group paid for a trip to Rome last year to give an address. Jonathan Enton is a Supreme Court expert and constitutional law professor at Case Western Reserve University. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I I guess now that there have been all these press reports in recent months about uh, how these Supreme Court justices are going here and there to parties, yachts, private planes, all the, you know, leading the good life. So now they're what? Finally uh, making it public? And I don't know if that's better or worse. Well, they're supposed to make these things public. Uh, There has been some discussion about exactly how much the justices might be required to disclose. But in general, it probably makes sense for the justices to reveal more rather than less so that people aren't wondering what are they hiding. Now, people might look at what they disclose and ask some questions. And I think we might reasonably ask some of the justices uh, whose disclosures now have become uh, a matter of controversy. How does this look? Uh, you know, it, you know, Justice Thomas says, well, he took he took this private flight uh, in uh, in May because of security concerns. But there's a whole raft of of things that Harlan Crow did for him. And it's not like Mr. Crow was some old, old friend from childhood or or college. Uh, And so when you when you see these sorts of things, people may wonder, and frankly, a public official in that situation should be asking, how is this going to look? What message does this convey? That sort of concern goes beyond does this influence the decisions that the justices make? But, but that is it's an important point. Think that that's the problem. Yeah, that is an important point. Uh, do we have instances here with these uh, cases that we're talking about where uh, people involved have gone before the court, before these justices, after these other things went on uh, off the record in, in the back room? Well, there is a situation involving Justice Alito um, where he took this private flight uh, up to Alaska some years ago that was paid for by a hedge fund manager. And it turns out that that sometime after that, uh, that person did have business before the court. But there are rules about recusal. In other words, uh, if, the, uh, if a justice or a judge uh, has a financial interest in a case uh, or is connected uh, to somebody in a case, the justice is not supposed to sit in that case. There apparently are a few cases like that, but that's not been the whole story. I mean, yes, Harlan Crow has had, um, I think, a, a small number of cases before the court, but the concern is much less about that. As I said, uh, maybe 
uh, Justice Thomas would should recuse in a situation like that. It's more the idea that we have some wealthy, sophisticated uh, person who is cultivating a relationship with a member of the highest court in the land, and that just doesn't look good. We're talking as much about optics as anything else. Well, well, I was going to say, but but the optics, of course, are really important, right? Because we are in a time, as you know, when the distrust of government institutions, and that includes the Supreme Court, is is the distrust is high, the trust is extremely low. And whether they disclose it or not, yeah, you know, give them kudos, I suppose, for now making it public, even though they did so under pressure. But the fact that they're going running around the world, you know, living this lifestyle while they're sitting on the highest court in the land, telling in effect other people what to do and how to live their lives, uh, doesn't go very far, does it, to rebuilding respect for the institution? I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly the concern. Um, But even if the level of public confidence in our national institutions were higher, the justices on all sides ought to be sensitive to appearances. That's the whole point of having a judicial system. We want people to have confidence that the cases are going to be decided by people who don't have some kind of vested interest and aren't flaunting their lifestyle uh, at the expense of the rest of us. Uh, That's just a terrible look. Uh, And as I said, that would be a terrible look, even if there were greater confidence in our national institutions than we now have. All right. Jonathan Enton, thank you so much. Uh, Supreme Court expert and constitutional law professor at Case Western Reserve University. Right now, though, we reported several weeks ago about the mystery surrounding some land that was being bought up in Northern California near Travis Air Force Base. Well, that mystery has been solved. A group led by Silicon uh, Silicon Valley tech leaders and venture capitalists are looking to build their own city. It almost sounds like the plot of a Bond movie. But it might not be so easy. With us is Catherine Moy, mayor of Fairfield, which is in the area northeast of San Francisco where this land is being bought. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So not quite at the level of a James Bond villain buying up some area where the human survivors that he will collect will live. Uh, What is going on and who's buying it? What is going on is a group called Flannery, which is an LLC, um, is the name in the front. But behind those uh, that name, which is, again, an LLC, a corporation, are a bunch of folks who are billionaires from Silicon Valley. And they um, want to build their own city and even maybe have their own rules and legislation untouched by anybody else. Well, Mayor, where so this city is how close to, say, San Francisco? Um, it would be about 40, a 40-minute 40 drive. 40-minute drive. And how big of an area are we talking about? The area they've bought is 56,000 acres, which is twice the size of San Francisco. Wow. So that that would be a major city if they could build all that in. How much power would this group have if they were able to establish a city on their own according to their own rules? They'd have to be almost godlike. Um, They have done something that's impossible, and that is 
brought together citizens here in Fairfield Solano County, um, environmentalists and builders and everybody in between to stand between Flannery and their new city. All right, let me let me take it if I can, from maybe their point of view, what is wrong about, you know, if the land is not doing anything and you have people who want to build on it and build a brand new city, uh, you know, we certainly need more housing for people, right? We need more facilities. We need more of everything. So what is wrong with it? What is wrong with it are a couple of things that they apparently have gone over their head or under their radar the big thing is Travis Air Force Base. Um, they bought land that surrounds the base. The base is one of the largest uh, national security assets we have in this country. It is the biggest airlift in the world. And we bring all the munitions, for instance, right now in the fight against Russia. Um, any encroachment on that base um, is a threat to its survival and its security, and we just cannot tolerate that at the local level or at the national level, which is why the Department of Defense and everybody in between is looking at it and concerned about it. So what could you do to stop it? Um, there are a lot of things that we can do. Uh, we've put together already coalitions. Uh, we have a group who stopped another city from being built in the same spot, in the 1980s, that was supposed to be the city of Manzanita. And this group got together and put together some legislation here locally that actually forbids them from building now. So I don't know how they're gonna get around that. Um, we will do everything we can to stop them as far as uh, legality. I wonder, I mean, would it be better if they have all this money clearly to spend if they spent that money, perhaps pumping it into your city or, or you know, San Francisco and say, you know what, there's room for improvement. And I'm sure, Mayor, you would have agreed there's probably room for improvement in your in your town. There uh, absolutely is. I think that's a great suggestion. I've actually openly said that the billion dollars that they've spent already here, they should cut their losses and take the rest of their billions of dollars they want to spend and build affordable housing in Silicon Valley. And what does that do? That puts uh, the workers that they need right there in the area where they work. So they're not on our freeways. Um, they're not, you know, they're, these people are concerned about carbon emissions. We'll get the cars off the road, build it down there and subsidize it so people can live there. So yeah, there are other things. We have all kinds of things. I can think of in my city, we could spend a billion dollars on and make it much better. Mm. You know, I, I was joking at the beginning of this, it, it sounded like the plot of a James Bond movie. And uh, I was just kidding, but you kind of you kind of buttressed my <laughs> imagination there with it. Uh, thank you for joining us. That is uh, Catherine Moy, mayor of Fairfield uh, in this area uh, northeast of San Francisco, where this land is being bought. By the way, we did reach out to Flannery Associates CEO uh, Jan Sramak, but we uh, have not heard back. So, uh, Rob, if you uh, let's say you and I chipped in like 10 bucks a piece, what yeah. kind of city could we build? Not a very big one. <laughs> not a very good one. I don't think we we couldn't afford a couch, much less a city. <laughs> 
You're listening to KNX and Death, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. You know, death is something that happens to every single one of us, or it will. It's not something, though, that we feel very comfortable talking about. But maybe that could and should change. Dr. Mark Goulston is a psychiatrist and former UCLA professor who's dedicated his career to saving lives as an expert in suicide prevention. Now, a medical diagnosis has him confronting his own mortality. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. So, so very briefly, tell us, uh, what exactly are you ill with? Uh, and then we'll go on from there. So I have a condition called high-risk MDS, myelodysplastic syndrome, and it goes into acute myeloid leukemia, which doesn't have a very good prognosis. And when I first got the diagnosis of MDS, high-risk uh, the prognosis was five months with a median survival of two years, but that's untreated. And then uh, I, I'll be heading towards leukemia, and the definitive treatment is a bone marrow transplant, which is like a, an organ transplant. Unfortunately, my children are donors, so that's worked out. But there's a 50% survival in people my age, 75, and there's a 20 to 30% chance of dying from the bone marrow transplant. Now, as uh, I've gotten older, and I, Charles uh, has gone through this too, every human being has, as we get older, we begin thinking about getting older because we see and feel the changes in our own bodies and the changes in the people that we know and love around us as we see them uh, get older and go through changes. But we kind of stop at the point where it comes to the quest of death. Because I think people just, they can't conceive of not being anymore. Uh, how did that change for you when you were suddenly faced with not only the aspect of you're getting older and the questions that come along with that, but now you're faced with the possibility of your own non-beingness? Well, in my profession as a psychiatrist, uh, two of my focuses were suicide prevention and uh and uh, death and dying, and I used to do house calls to dying patients, trying to help them find peace at the 11th hour, and so by doing that, I was a a witness to what a good death was and what a not-so-good death was, and those who could confront it calmly and those who couldn't confront it calmly, and so I've listened. I have a book on called Just Listen. I've listened for 45 years, and uh, and I'm wanting to share what I heard, and, I'm, and I feel an urgency to share what I've learned in those 45 years. And one of the things I learned is what makes for a, a good death. And, and in my case, uh, when I was able to define uh, the main components, it was, I, I'm not into pain and suffering, physical pain and suffering. So I wanted to alleviate that. Second is I didn't want to be a burden to my family, uh, psychologically, emotionally, financially, and because I'm 75 and I've gotten this far, my children have have launched, I'm in a better position than a a lot of people. And when my wife told me that they'll be okay financially, I uh, started crying for about a half a day with relief. Uh, the, The third thing is... I'm I'm a serial creative, so I'm I'm the creative head of about seven projects, and so I want to tie up loose ends, 
so that those projects can continue without me. And in the fourth component, as I said, I've been listening for over 40 years, and I've learned things from life. And every day I'm learning something new that I didn't know, and I feel an urgency to share those. And, and uh, in anticipation of this show, I started posting some videos on a YouTube channel, Mark Goulston, MD, Mark Goulston, MD, and you'll see, uh, uh, you'll see some of those postings. It doesn't sound as if you're afraid of dying, are you? No, I, and I, you know, I don't think I'm in denial. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I, I say this humorously to people, I'll say, wow, dying has cured my depression and anxiety. <laughs> I'm not depressed or anxious at all. Why? I think uh, I've been trying to figure that out, and every day, part of it, this may sound crazy, but kind of knowing when you're going to die gives you a sense of some control, whereas not knowing when you're going to die, you know, of course we could be hit by a truck and anything like that, but there's something about knowing it and also knowing about how to put all the puzzle pieces together and one of those is having a great team, and that has included people from the City of Hope and Cedars, and they've been amazing, and it wasn't easy getting through to them, but I was able to, and now we've assembled the pieces. I have confidence in them. I have trust. Uh, I have a weird sense of humor. I said to both of them, win, lose, or die, I'm good to go. <laughs> And we're back with psychiatrist Dr. Mark Goulston, who's with us in studio talking about facing death and how to handle it in a positive way. Uh, you were saying during the commercial break, Doctor, that, that there's something personal you wanted to share? Yeah, I think one of the biggest uh, discoveries in heading towards a good death for me is I've let people care about me. I've always had trouble letting anyone care about me because... I'm the caretaker, I'm the doctor, I'm the therapist, uh, and I would, I would refuse to let anyone care about me, but when I sense someone's caring about me and they say, uh, what's going on, instead of saying everything's fine, when I talk to them, I start to cry, and it's with relief, appreciation, embarrassment, and I apologize, and everyone has said, don't you dare apologize it's an honor to care about you. And it's interesting. Some of these people are incredibly busy. You can't get on their calendar. And every one of them at the end of the conversation has said another thing, Mark. What? 24-7. You can call me 24-7. And recently I said, I don't think I'm dying in the next month or two. It's going to be. I said, so if you want to rescind your offer, you can take it back. <laughs> and they said, it still stands. But... It's, it's just a weird thing, letting people care about you. And, and what some of them have said is, Mark, it's an honor to care about you, and this is the most emotionally intimate conversation I have had in years. You know, uh, Doctor, there are a lot of people listening right now to the show and thinking about death, and they say they have no problem with it because uh, they have a religious belief. They're going to heaven. They're fine. They're not scared. They're not worried about it, and, and that that can help some people get through life and, and face their end. 
Now, in my example, I used to be a very religious person, and I had that belief. Oh, well, then I, when I die, I'm going to heaven. But I went through a change, and now uh, I, I understand that we don't know what's going to happen, and we can't know. So why spend a lot of time worrying about what's going to happen after you die? And someone asked me, well, what do you think happens? I said, for me, the most likely answer is it's going to be a lot like the billions of years of cosmic history before I was born— I seem to have been okay then. I think it'll be a lot like that after I'm gone, and I think I'll be able to handle it because I just won't be. Is it? Does it help people to have a belief that they're going some other place? Or if someone believes they're just going to not be anymore, who does better in facing their own mortality in that case? Uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm dying agnostic, meaning whatever, whatever gets you through the night— works. So if it's helpful to believe that there's an afterlife, then believe in that. If it's, uh, it, if it's helpful to realize you're part of some process, uh, one of my mentors, a fellow named Dr. Edwin Schneinman, had a great quote. He called it, willing the obligatory. And I said, what did that mean, Ed? And he said, well, when you can will something that you're obligated to accept, you know, then you have some power over it. I remember a quote that he gave me. He said, you know, Mark, tens of billions of people have died before you and me, and if they can do it, so can we. You were also telling us uh, during the break before about that there are people that you have, uh, I guess, sort of attended as a physician who you knew, who were patients or friends, who were dying, and, and some of them... Uh, regretted their lives. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, and why is that important, and how do you stop that? Well, I think the other thing that's giving me peace of mind is I think I've lived according to my values all my life, and my values are not particularly um, transactional. So the top of my values are is kindness, uh, curiosity, being of service, getting stuff done, and personal responsibility. And I've done that. But there are a number of people who for, for, forewent or foregone their values of childhood in order to make a killing out there in the world. And then they got addicted to it. They got addicted to the things. And then at the end of their life, some of them realized that... Um, all those addictions to things, you know, they didn't know who they were. It wasn't who they believed themselves to be. And a number of my patients felt they had lived their life wrong, even, yeah. though, even though they had lots of money. Yeah, and you were saying that, and, and I think it, you were saying without saying who, uh, it involved some, someone everyone would know. Yeah, yeah there, was, there was someone I visited, and... Uh, they like that I could be direct. These are powerful person. I once told this particular person who is well-known, and I said, you look like crap, and I don't think it's because you're dying. You've been dying as long as I know you. What's going on? And he said, uh, I have all the love that money can buy. That's uh -huh. all it's worth. Uh -huh. And everything I thought was important isn't, and everything that... Uh, I get this mixed up. Everything that I thought was important isn't. Everything that I 
thought, whatever they, the they They just were not satisfied yeah, with yeah, what and they, they said, did. I, and I could, I, I've run out of time to fix it. Mm. You know, I, I do feel that way sometimes. I feel like there are things I want to do, and it's so hard to find the time. And I think, you know, I'm going to die one of these days, and I won't have done them. And that does, uh, does okay, bo- I think so, that bothers so, a lot of people. So here's the first re- realization I got when I got calm with this. I call it Michelangelo dying, just like he carved, he saw the angel in the marble and he carved to set it free. I've identified what's unimportant in life, and it's huge in my life, and I just lopped it off, and what's important glows. If you can just step back and think, what's really important to me, and this has enabled me to do that. But initially, were you calm when you got the diagnosis? You're a doctor, so you understood more than most people what the diagnosis meant. Uh, were you initially taking it okay or what? Uh, probably not, but I think I was more in a state of numbness than fear. Dr. Mark Golston, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us in the studio today. Talked about something people usually don't like to talk about, death. Uh, and and how to face it and how to get to the end of your life and uh, maybe being more at peace with what you've done with your life. And I think the most important thing is to let people care about you and something a lot of us aren't good at. Just let people care. I care about you, Charles. Will you let me? No. No? Okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, good example of uh, how not to do it. That's it for KNX in Depth today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.